The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Happy New Year and welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. On the morning of April Fool's Day in 1990, 45-year-old Darlene Phillips called 911 to report that 85-year-old Walter Gibbs was dying at his farmhouse on the edge of Lemon, South Dakota. By the time emergency responders arrived, Darlene was beside herself with worry, and they soon discovered Walter was Darlene's roommate, as well as her ex-husband. When the emergency responders found Walter lying on the living room couch, he wasn't breathing. Walter had a long history of medical problems and was on a slew of medications, as well as having a pacemaker. So when these factors were considered alongside his old age, the EMTs figured this was an open and shut case and wrote it off as a heart attack. Walter was pronounced dead at the hospital, and since no foul play was suspected, no autopsy was performed, as it would not have been routine to do so. But a year later, local authorities received a tip that suggested things were not as they seemed. Darlene, who was in prison, was telling other inmates that she had killed Walter with the help of her new husband, Jerome Phillips, and her twin sister, Dolores Christensen. In a shocking turn of events that would only serve to make matters more confusing, Walter had actually been married to both Darlene and her twin sister, Dolores, on multiple occasions over the course of about 25 years. Walter first married Dolores, the two divorced, and then he married Darlene, which also ended in divorce. This pattern repeated once more, and somewhere in that sequence, Walter also married an additional woman, resulting in five marriages throughout his lifetime. The bad blood between Walter and his ex-wives was strong. In fact, in 1991, the year after Walter's death, Darlene was sentenced to 50 years in prison for trying to burn down Walter's house while he was sleeping inside it. Walter probably wasn't aware that she had attempted to do this, or else he likely wouldn't have allowed Darlene to be his roommate. Dolores had also been to prison recently. But that was because she helped Darlene's husband, Jerome, steal a farmer's pigs and sheep. She served 60 days in prison for this, while Jerome received eight years as the main perpetrator of the crime. To complicate things even further, in addition to the love triangle between Walter, Darlene, and Dolores, there was a second love triangle going on between Dolores, Darlene, and Darlene's husband, Jerome. Despite being married to Darlene, Jerome had openly, publicly proclaimed his love for his sister-in-law, Dolores. Despite the peculiar dynamic, together the three plotted Walter's demise. In January of 1990, they convinced him to change his will so that Dolores was heir to his $178,000 estate, which is about $400,000 in today's money. The three co-conspirators would then split the inheritance after they killed Walter. On April 1st, 1990, they carried out their plan and Jerome smothered Walter with a pillow while Darlene held him down and Dolores waited in the kitchen. In June 1991, a jury deliberated for five hours before convicting Darlene Phillips of conspiracy to murder her ex-husband, Walter Gibbs, 
and she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The jury fully acquitted her twin sister Dolores of the same charges, in part because Dolores's mental state had diminished greatly in recent years. Her lawyer told the jury she had the mental capabilities of a young child, although it's unclear whether this was true. Jerome was sentenced to 50 years in prison. All of this drama and intrigue was the talk of the town for Itty Bitty Lemon, South Dakota, which has a population of just 1,154 people. For weeks, the wild love life of the twin sisters was all anyone could talk about. That isn't exactly surprising, since North and South Dakota are both known for their large expanses of farmland, sleepy towns, and close-knit communities. According to SafeWise, both states' violent crime rates are lower than the national average, and their residents feel safer than most in other states. The biggest threat to North and South Dakotans usually isn't murder. It's people stealing packages from their front porches. But sadly, murderous romantic entanglements like that which Walter Gibbs experienced can happen anywhere. And it happened again, not too far from his own story. Join me as we explore another dangerous love triangle that occurred just two hours north of Lemon in Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay, on to the show. Chad Allen Ensel was born on March 31, 1977, to his mother, Deb, and his father, Ernie. He had a sister named Lori, and they spent their childhood near Halliday, which is located in the western half of North Dakota. Halliday is an incredibly small town with a population of only 231 people, with the entire town containing only one gas station, one restaurant, which is actually an Irish pub and grill, and one church. From the information available, it appears that Chad Ensel had a pretty normal upbringing in high school. He was athletic and participated in track for multiple years. Chad graduated from the Halliday Public School System around 1995 and traveled five hours across North Dakota to attend college in Wapiton, where he studied drafting with the hopes of being able to start a career in product development and manufacturing. Chad's friends described him as an active and hands-on guy who struggled to sit in class, so studying a technical skill like drafting was right up his alley. It's unclear if Chad graduated from his drafting program in Wapiton, but when he was 19 years old, he traveled back toward western North Dakota to work in the city of Dickinson. While there, Chad put his newfound drafting skills to good use and began working at Steph's Church Furniture Manufacturing. During his time in Dickinson, Chad met a young woman named Susan D. Kinnickst, who was the same age as Chad and also worked in Dickinson at the Pumpkin Patch Daycare Center. The two quickly fell for each other, and the young couple was married on November 16, 1996, at First Presbyterian Church in Bismarck, Susan's hometown. After a time, Chad and Susan moved from Dickinson to Bismarck, which was the city where Chad would work and live for over 20 years. Bismarck is a medium-sized city in Burley County with a population of 75,000, and it is an area known for its beautiful hiking and nature paths, so it was great for an outdoorsy guy like Chad. We're not sure when, but at some point, Chad and Susan's relationship began to turn south. Later in court, 
Susan would claim that their relationship troubles stemmed from her belief that Chad spent more time and more money on his hobbies than he did on Susan. And it was because of this they eventually divorced. Of course, relationships are complex, and we don't know Chad's side of the story. But Susan was right about one thing. Chad did have a lot of hobbies, and some of them were expensive. Chad was an extroverted, fun person who liked spending time with his friends and having a wide variety of interests help him do exactly that. Chad loved to shoot darts, play golf, bowl, and race. He was an active race car driver who raced at Bismarck's Dakota Speedway often. He participated in a racing category called Thunder Fours and usually did really well, winning the Thunder Fours races two nights in a row in 2011. Over the years, Chad's passion for racing cars and many hours logged at the Dakota Speedway led him to a woman named Nikki Sue Hines. Nikki was also an avid race car fan, but she preferred to be in the stands rather than the driver's seat. Nikki Sue Melissa Hines was born in February of 1981 to her parents in Aberdeen, located in the northern part of South Dakota. While in Aberdeen, Nikki spent her childhood alongside her younger brother, Matthew Hines, but the two never developed a close sibling relationship. As adults, Nikki and Matthew would grow even further apart since they didn't live in the same cities. Until sometime in the 2010s, Nikki primarily lived in Aberdeen with a brief move to Brooklyn, New York, while Matthew settled in Dickinson, North Dakota with his two sons, working as a financial analyst. We're not sure when, but at some point, Nikki married a man named Ryan, and the pair had two sons together. When their relationship ended, Nikki went through several legal battles to obtain full custody of their sons, so they both lived with her full-time. Sometime in the mid-2010s, Nikki was spectating races at the Dakota Speedway while Chad was competing, and when the two racing enthusiasts met, they immediately headed off and started dating. It was a match made in heaven, and Nikki and Chad were so incredibly in love that their friends reported they were noticeably happier. But at the start of their relationship, Nikki and Chad had to overcome a major obstacle, distance. They couldn't see each other often because they lived in different cities. Nikki had only been visiting the Dakota Speedway, and she still lived three hours away from Bismarck in Aberdeen, South Dakota. According to Nikki, it was tough to move to Bismarck right away because she had two sons to think about and she would need to find a good job in Bismarck to support her family. Still, the two lovebirds made it work, and once or twice a month, Chad and Nikki would meet up in Jamestown, North Dakota, which was about halfway between Bismarck and Aberdeen. After enduring a long-distance relationship for a period of time, Nikki was finally able to move her family to Bismarck so that she could be with Chad full-time. Around 2015, Chad proposed to Nikki on the dance floor at their friend's wedding reception, and on May 21, 2016, 39-year-old Chad Ensel married 35-year-old Nikki Sue Ensel at a small destination wedding in Arizona. For three years, Nikki and Chad appeared to flourish together, especially since Chad thrived as a stepfather to Nikki's two sons. People who knew the couple reported that Chad was easygoing and calm with Nikki's kids. He never raised his voice at them or showed any hints of being violent. Chad also loved coaching the boys' Little League team, where the players looked up to Chad as a role model. Things were going well, 
and in November of 2019, Nikki and Chad's family moved into a sizable new home in a rural area just outside of the city limits of Bismarck. At the time, Nikki worked at Community Options, which is a program that helps people who might struggle to live alone, and she also ran a baking company called Savory Sweets out of her and Chad's home. To onlookers, the whole Ensel family seemed to be prospering. Nikki and Chad were both gainfully employed at jobs they liked, Nikki's sons got along with their new stepdad, and they'd moved into a nice, bigger house. What more could they possibly want? Ad break. Perfect there. Like I mentioned earlier, Chad was a man of many hobbies, one of which was participating in his local bowling league. Chad was an amazing bowler, and for over 10 years, the Bismarck Tribune regularly reported Chad as one of the top bowlers in his league. On multiple occasions, Chad scored a 300, which, for our non-bowling listeners, myself included, is when a bowler gets a strike for all 10 frames, otherwise known as a perfect game. As you might imagine, to become this great at bowling, Chad had to be practicing constantly, and he had two weekly bowling nights per week, which took place on Monday and Thursday. On Monday, December 30th, 2019, Chad went bowling like he always did, from about 7 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. That night, Chad's bowling teammates said that he was in good spirits. One of Chad's friends had to miss that particular bowling session, So he texted Chad later to see how it went, but Chad never responded to the message. The next day, on December 31st, Chad's wife Nikki called his work and explained Chad couldn't come in because he was sick. On January 1st, 2020, everyone was enjoying their New Year's Day holiday, so no one was worried too much about Chad's whereabouts. But on January 2nd, Chad's co-workers became concerned when he didn't show up to work again and it wasn't like him to no-call no-show like this. Chad's colleagues called Nikki and explained that Chad was missing, but Nikki said she was too busy at work to check on her husband. She assured them that she would be able to see if he was okay later in the day. Dissatisfied with this response and fearing the worst, Chad's co-workers went above and beyond by driving to Nikki and Chad's house to check on him. When they arrived at the Ensel home, they were surprised to find that Chad's pickup was in the driveway with a frozen water bottle inside of it, which indicated Chad hadn't warmed up his truck recently. The co-workers knocked on Chad's door, but no one answered. Nikki's two sons were staying with Nikki's parents in Aberdeen for winter break, so they weren't home to answer the door either. Distressed about Chad's safety and out of options, Chad's co-workers called the police and asked for a welfare check. Local authorities arrived at Nikki and Chad's house, but they didn't find anything abnormal outside or when looking through the house windows, so they didn't forcibly enter the home. Hours later, Nikki arrived home after work at 5.20 p.m., and as soon as Nikki opened the door to her house, she called 911. When Nikki spoke to the emergency operator, she said the following, I came out here to check on my husband, 
I received a text message that he didn't come into work today, and I've been out for a few days, so I'm coming here to check. And I walked in the house, and it's smoky. I can't get in the door. In the recording, Nikki sounds concerned and frightened for her husband's well-being. At one point, she begins sobbing, and the operator has to help calm her down. Minutes later, police and firemen arrived at the Ensel home. When they got there, they put out a small fire near the basement's furnace and another one in the upstairs bedroom, which is where the authorities tragically also discovered Chad's deceased body. He was found on the floor, was totally naked, and had sustained what appeared to be a single, close-range gunshot wound to the head. There was an outline of soot around both the shotgun and Chad's body, indicating they had been there before the fire started, and since there was no soot in Chad's throat or lungs, experts were led to believe Chad wasn't alive during the fire, so he must have died beforehand. At first glance, the emergency responders thought the answer seemed clear. Chad had completed suicide or accidentally discharged a shotgun, and then the house had accidentally caught fire. There was only one shell in the shotgun which affirmed the responders' theories. When officers spoke to Nikki at the Ensel house, her demeanor was very calm for a grieving widow. But, of course, we know, everyone reacts to trauma in different ways. Besides, Nikki may have good reasons not to grieve her newly deceased husband. As soon as local authorities began speaking with her, Nikki explained to them that Chad was a wife-beating alcoholic. She immediately showed one officer a picture of a bruised arm, explaining that Chad often hit her when he was drinking. Later, the officer would report that it wasn't clear whether this was a photo of Nikki's arm or someone else's, and that the two bruises on the arm were very small. The officer was taken aback by how prepared Nikki was with the photo, whipping it out during an interview immediately after her husband died. He also found it odd how many unnecessary details Nikki provided him, including that she was planning on leaving Chad and moving to Texas without him. She already had a job interview lined up in a couple of weeks. So it turns out that Nikki and Chad's seemingly picture-perfect life had actually been falling apart for quite some time. Similar to Chad's first wife, Susan, Nikki was frustrated that Chad spent too much time and energy on his hobbies, like bowling and racing, and she was upset that since Chad was never home, many responsibilities fell to her. According to Nikki, Chad had a gambling problem, and his creditors would often harass her when he couldn't be reached. While Chad's gambling has never been conclusively proven, he did have a payday loan which indicates he may have struggled to manage his money. Nikki claimed Chad enjoyed terrorizing her, and when Chad said he wanted to play drinking games, it was actually a code phrase for Chad getting drunk and beating her. In the months leading up to Chad's death, Nikki told multiple friends and family members that Chad was abusing her and drinking to excess all the time. She told Chad's sister Lori that she and Chad were constantly fighting, especially when Chad was drunk, explaining to Lori that Chad had a drinking problem but refused to seek treatment for it. The whole situation struck Lori as weird because she only knew her brother to be a social drinker, and when Chad was drunk, he was giggly, not angry. Nikki also showed Lori her bruised arm, like she did the police later on, 
but this time, Nikki attributed the bruises to her ongoing illnesses, not Chad's abuse. Nikki told similar tales of Chad's abuse to her friend, Michelle Mundy, and texted her photos of herself with a black eye, an unidentified bruised leg, and an unidentified bruised arm. Nikki also complained to Michelle that Chad cheated on her and was racking up gambling debts. To others, Nikki said she reported Chad's abuse to the doctor, but that she wouldn't leave him because she was scared he would hunt her down if she did. That December, Nikki met with her brother Matthew at a McDonald's to exchange Christmas gifts for their children. And during this visit, Nikki told Matthew that she and Chad were having problems. Once again, she explained that Chad was abusing her, that it was especially bad when he drank, and she also told Matthew she had bruises on her legs from the abuse, but Matthew claimed that he never saw them. Later, during the trial, Matthew recalled that Nikki was driven to McDonald's by her friend, Earl Howard, who Matthew had seen in passing with Nikki once before. Matthew thought it was unusual when Nikki left McDonald's, hopped into the passenger side of Earl's pickup truck, and rather than remain on the passenger side of the truck's bench seat, scooted all the way across to sit right next to Earl. Matthew felt this was inappropriate behavior for a married woman like Nikki. Around Christmas, Nikki and Chad drove to a family gathering in separate cars, and Nikki left the celebration early to go to the gym. Later, Nikki told a friend of hers that Chad would sometimes follow her to the gym in his vehicle, because he was worried Nikki wasn't going to the gym at all, but was instead cheating on him. On the evening Chad's body was discovered, Nikki spoke with the police officers and explained Chad's ongoing drinking and physical abuse. Nikki said that her home security was faulty and the cameras and door sensors didn't work, but miraculously they did when she showed the investigating officer the security app on her phone. Nikki agreed to let investigators search her phone because she had a brand new and unactivated phone in an Amazon box in her car. Police snapped a photo of the Amazon box and noticed that the mailing address on the box was to a 43-year-old man named Earl Roy Howard from Bellwood, Ontario, Canada. This was the first the police had heard of Earl, so they took note of his name for later. It is worth noting that although Earl will be important in this case as it progresses, Due to a plea deal at a later date, very little information is publicly available about him. Nikki's brother Matthew soon arrived at the house to help Nikki through this tragedy. Although the siblings weren't close, their mother had requested Matthew come to Nikki's aid since he lived closer than most of the other family members. That day was Matthew's son's birthday, so he was reluctant to travel an hour and a half from his home to help out his estranged sister, but he put aside his misgivings and made the trek. At the house, Nikki told Matthew that the police officers had found Chad's body crispy, but it's unclear how she knew this information since she had claimed on her 911 call that she could not enter the house. After Matthew provided Nikki with emotional support at her home, they headed to Nikki's hotel room for the night. Matthew was shocked that Nikki already had a room booked at the local Staybridge Suites, but Nikki explained that she and Chad's furnace was on the fritz so she hadn't been sleeping at home for a few days. Apparently, the furnace's pilot light wouldn't relight, and since it was January in North Dakota, where the average high is 21 degrees and the average low is less than negative one degree, Nikki felt it was too cold for her to stay in the house without heat. 
Nikki explained to investigators that she had multiple chronic illnesses that made the low temperatures unbearable. She also explained that before she had left for the hotel, Nikki and Chad thought about the furnace. Chad didn't understand why Nikki was upset. He thought it was fine. Strangely, two HVAC professionals had already looked at the furnace and agreed that it was working perfectly. Back at the hotel, Matthew was also perplexed by the items Nikki was keeping in her room. She had a huge amount of clothes, cookware, and food, and it looked like Nikki was planning on moving into a new home rather than merely staying in a hotel for a few days. Sure, Nikki was going to Texas at some point, but not yet. Matthew recalled this moment with vivid clarity because Nikki had a surprising amount of butter in the hotel fridge. This large amount of butter could likely be explained by the baking company Nikki operated out of her home, as could huge bags of flour and sugar police officers had commented on in the Ensel home. According to Matthew, something else he found noteworthy was that Nikki spent the entire evening after discovering her husband's dead body on the phone with the same male friend from before, Earl Howard. The next day, Nikki and Matthew met Chad's family at the funeral home to make arrangements for his funeral services and burial. Later the same day, Nikki also called multiple insurance companies to begin the claims process as she was named as beneficiary for both the renter's and life insurance policies. The life insurance policy was worth $600,000 and had been taken out by Chad two years prior in 2018, while the renter's insurance policy was worth $31,000 and was significantly more recent, having only been taken out by Nikki on December 27th, less than a week before Chad died. Chad, who had not signed off on the new renter insurance policies. Although Nikki had to wait for future payouts, she did immediately receive a $2,500 advance plus hotel expenses from her insurance company to help her get by. Following Chad's death, Nikki remained at the hotel for a few days, even after Matthew went home. According to Nikki, she didn't return to her home, which only had small amounts of fire damage, because she was tired. Later on, Nikki went to the police station to answer some questions about Chad's death for a video-recorded interview. During the conversation with the investigating officer, Nikki recounted much of her story to the investigator, reiterating that Chad was an alcoholic who often went through 12 750-milliliter bottles of Crown Royal and Irish whiskey per month, in addition to an unknown amount of beer. Nikki also said that if there wasn't enough beer at a family gathering, Chad became upset, and if Chad bowled poorly, he would abuse her out of anger. Nikki continued to explain that the furnace wasn't working, so she went to a hotel. When the interviewing officer asked Nikki about this mysterious Earl Howard, Nikki said he was her friend and a former catering customer. Earl had gone with her to Chad's house on the evening of December 30th to help her retrieve her medication and a few other items. And Nikki said she and Earl were in and out of the hotel throughout the night of Chad's death because they were attending the Christmas lights display at Bismarck's Candy Cane Lane. When the detective asked why Nikki called Chad in sick to work on December 31st, Nikki claimed Chad had texted her and asked her to do so. Although this text message conversation was inexplicably absent from Nikki's phone. Throughout her entire interview with the police officer, Nikki suggested that Chad was unhappy, cheating on her, and frequently discussed killing himself. 
Although Nikki seemed certain that Chad's death was a suicide, the police officer questioning her wasn't buying this theory for a multitude of reasons. While investigating the bedroom Chad's body was found in, the Burley County deputies found a bloody handprint next to Chad's body. They found it highly unlikely that after a gunshot to the head, Chad could have remained conscious for long enough that he was able to reach out and leave a handprint. One officer said, The way that things were laid out in the room, the location of Mr. Ensel, the location of the shotgun, and then the multiple injuries to his body, we were not convinced it was a suicide at that point. That was something else the investigation had noticed. Chad's body didn't have one gunshot wound, but two. It had been hard to see both wounds at first due to the massive amount of damage the gunshots had caused to Chad's body, and later on in court, the state medical examiner, Dr. William Masello, would describe the two wounds as devastating. He would explain that the first gunshot entered below and behind Chad's ear, and may not have been lethal, although it would have severely injured Chad's brain. However, the second gunshot wound Chad suffered was certainly deadly. It entered Chad's left tricep and exited through his shoulder before continuing on to enter his head. If Chad had survived, the medical examiner believed he would have sustained severe neurological damage. There were several other elements of the crime scene that didn't seem to add up. Experts determined that Chad's body was very decomposed, as if it had been lying in the bedroom for multiple days before the fire even began. The shotgun in question was found on Chad's bed, while Chad's body was on the floor, which meant that the gun was too far away for Chad to have dropped it after committing suicide, or for him to have bumped it and inadvertently caused it to fire. Furthermore, authorities were also skeptical of the circumstances surrounding the fires, as they believed two accidental fires simultaneously starting in two different rooms so far apart was not a coincidence. In the basement, investigators found the furnace where one of the fires had occurred. The furnace's cover had been removed and propped up as if someone was trying to allow the blaze to grow. In the upstairs bedroom, there was a propane heater very close to Chad's bed, which initially appeared to be the cause of the bedroom fire. However, with the help of canine units and a fire specialist, investigators were able to identify that a highly flammable accelerant liquid had been used as a source of fuel in both the bedroom and the basement. Police also found other strange items in Chad's bedroom, like an empty pack of red Marlboro cigarettes and two empty whiskey bottles, which was odd since Chad didn't smoke and he only drank socially. Now we'll return to the day of the murder and an unfamiliar name. Upon seeing Earl Howard's name and address on Nikki's Amazon package, local authorities had begun looking into him since they considered buying someone a phone to be an intimate purchase. Investigators soon noticed that on Nikki's original phone, she had sent numerous romantic text messages to Earl, as well as a fictitious video where one spouse kills the other. And that wasn't all. The investigators then discovered that the hotel room Nikki was staying at was booked under Earl Howard's name. And when they examined the hotel room, officers found cell phones belonging to Nikki and Earl that were associated with Texas phone numbers. Also in the room were sneakers with a dark, soot-like residue on them, as if someone had recently walked through a burning house while wearing them. Shortly after, 
Investigators were able to use surveillance footage from the hotel, Nikki and Chad's home, and local stores to confirm what they already suspected. Nikki and Earl were having an affair, and had been for months. Nikki and Chad had met 40-year-old Earl Howard through Nikki's home-operated baking business, Savory Sweets. While all three adults were friends, Nikki and Earl connected especially well. And by October 2019, Earl was driving from Canada to the U.S. multiple times a month to visit Nikki in Bismarck and other cities. From examination of phone records, the police realized that Earl and Nikki planned to run away to Texas together and that they were going to bring Nikki's sons and Earl's daughter with them. Nikki felt Earl could provide her with financial stability and help her pay off Chad's debts. And Earl encouraged this feeling, assuring Nikki that he would take care of her, saying that he had multiple people watching over her in Bismarck. It was around the same time that Nikki and Earl met that Nikki and Chad's relationship began deteriorating. They stopped sharing a bedroom and began fighting more. Then, Nikki started telling her friends and family about Chad's alleged drinking and abuse. During Nikki's video interview at the police station, the investigating officer knew all of this information. After letting Nikki speak, he informed her that he knew she was lying, and that investigators had corroborated the times Earl and Nikki left the Staybridge Suites, finding that they aligned perfectly with the timeline of when Chad was murdered. Shortly after the officer put pressure on Nikki to start being honest, her story changed dramatically, and she even shared that she was kind of relieved that Chad was gone. Based on her confession and the evidence gathered by local authorities, this is the most likely version of events on the days before and the night of Chad Ensel's death. Two days before Chad died, on December 29th, Earl drove down from Canada and picked up Nikki in Minnesota and together they drove down to Bismarck and got a room at the Staybridge Suites. The next day, Earl and Nikki went to Chad's home in the evening under the premise of retrieving Nikki's things. The couple knew Chad was bowling at this time and wouldn't be present, so Earl waited in the car while Nikki moved a huge amount of her belongings out of her soon-to-be torched house. At this time, investigators believe that Nikki also planted a shotgun in Chad's home for later use. Then, on December 31st, Nikki and Earl returned to Chad's home around 1 a.m. Nikki set the home security system to privacy mode. Then, the couple shot 40-year-old Chad Ensel twice in the face with a shotgun while he was sleeping and staged the crime scene in a way they believed would make it look like a suicide. They removed an empty shotgun shell, left an unfired round in the shotgun, and placed two whiskey bottles near Chad's body. Next. Earl used a lit cigarette and some fire accelerant from a torch kit he'd recently purchased to start a fire in Chad's bedroom, hoping to burn the body and evidence. But the fire didn't take. Nikki and Earl were forced to return the next morning around 6.30 a.m. to try and light the fire again, this time in the basement. To buy time, Nikki called Chad's work and reported him sick so that no one would be suspicious of his absence. They needed time to let the fire destroy the house without anyone checking on him. By the end of the interrogation, Nikki blamed Earl for murdering Chad, claiming that she wasn't in the room when it happened. She admitted to going back to the house with Earl to set the fire, but she said Earl was the one to actually light the blaze. It is unclear whether she was telling the truth. On January 7, 2020, Nikki was arrested 
and two days later, on January 9th, Earl was also arrested. While he was in the process of attempting to flee the U.S. into Canada via Michigan, he was captured at the Blue Water Bridge connecting Port Huron, Michigan with Ontario, Canada. On February 29, 2020, both Earl and Nikki pled not guilty. And although the world stood still for a while due to COVID-19, over a year later on October 22, 2021, Earl pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit arson, conspiracy to tamper with physical evidence, and arson. Unfortunately, neither he nor Nikki could be charged with murder because no forensic evidence could confirm who pulled the shotgun trigger that killed Chad. During Earl's sentencing hearing, Chad's family made several statements to Earl. Deb Ensel, Chad's mother, said, How could you do such a cruel thing to another person that you didn't even know, that did nothing to you? She also said Chad's murder created a wound so deep it would never heal. An unnamed family member agreed, saying that this senseless act of violence has completely taken over their life. Chad's sister Lori told Earl, You did things that no human being should ever do to another human being. That just proves what kind of person you are. Earl did not respond with a statement of his own. He received 25 years in prison and will be 64 years old when he is released on parole. And fortunately, Chad Ensel's family was satisfied with this sentence. Nikki, on the other hand, continued to plead not guilty. Her six-day trial began on September 27, 2022, where she faced three conspiracy charges for murder, arson, and tampering with physical evidence. Prosecutors claimed that Nikki and her boyfriend Earl planned the murder of Chad Ensel, and after they killed him, they attempted to set Chad's house on fire to cash in on a renter's and life insurance policy, as well as other payouts. The prosecution called 45 people to the stand, including police, fire investigators, Chad's family, Nikki's family, and the state medical examiner. During the trial, it was revealed that Nikki was cheating on Chad with Earl, and also cheating on Earl with additional men. Nikki's defense team called zero witnesses to the stand, and on Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, after two hours of deliberation, the jury found Nikki Sue Ensel guilty of all counts related to murdering her husband, Chad Ensel, three years earlier. Chad's sister, Lori Krauss, said, We hoped and prayed the jury would see Chad for the guy he was, and not for who she said he was. Obviously, that came through loud and clear. Nikki's sentencing hearing was initially scheduled for January 4, 2023, where she was facing up to life in prison. However, there were some issues with some pre-trial documentation and a psych evaluation that was not done in proper time. So, her new sentencing date is March 6, 2023. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice, but only if you're going to get five stars, because it's really a big help. Okay, okay, we'll take four. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecases with Laney. You can follow me personally on Laney Hobbs VO on Instagram and Laney underscore VO on Twitter. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. 
This episode was researched and written for the final time by Andrea Marshbank, who is an incredible writer and we wish her the best. We are going to miss her so much. Now, content editing was done by Jesse Hawk, produced as always by Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. <laughs>